Hello and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher with 15 years of classroom experience. But while I'm reasonably competent at things like setting homework and teaching Pythagoras, I have to say that there are plenty of things about the exams our GCSE and A-level students take that still feel a bit foreign to me. So across this series, I'm going to be asking what you want to know from the exam boards before venturing into uncharted territory to uncover the mysteries behind the exams our students take. Today it's all about language. Words reflect our understanding of the world, but they actively shape it too. Rousing speeches can convince us to go to war, to explore the moon, to become activists, not necessarily because of their content, but because of their imagery, their poetry, their pronouns. Language sparks imagination. The words our students read in a question paper will influence their ability to imagine the answer. So, do exam boards consider this when they're writing questions? Before I set out on my first journey, I need to know what else you need to know. My name is Vicky Burt and I am a biology teacher at a grammar school. Do you have any kind of panel where you look at the language? Is there any, anybody who decides on the wording of questions? And then the examples... You've got students from all kinds of backgrounds, students who didn't necessarily grow up in this country, who decides on what your average inner-city teenager is going to know. A single word could be interpreted very differently by each of our students. They'll all be informed by their backgrounds, their experiences, their knowledge. So, how do exam writers pick words that make it irrefutably clear what response is expected? Like Vicky asks, do they think about it at all? Now, one of AQA's assessment design managers is Georgina Holmes. And I suspect she'll be just the person to answer all your questions. So I'm going to meet her to find out more. Hello, Georgina. And first off, thank you so much for inviting me here today. Now, you are an assessment design manager. That is a very fancy title. I love it. <laughs> what does it involve? Well, it involves quite a lot of different things. One of the things that I typically do is I'm involved in the question paper writing process as an assessment expert. So I work with subject experts. And I tend to spend quite a lot of my time looking at question papers to look at language accessibility. And there are lots of different things that I look for when I'm doing that. We generally tend to make sure that there are as few words as possible in a question. We try to shorten sentences and put them on separate lines where possible and make sure there's absolute clarity in questions, that there's no ambiguity for students at all. Can I ask you a quick question on this? After you've been doing this for many, many yeah. years, do you develop a bit of a, a skill that where you, you see a question and immediately you think, uh-oh, that's got to go, that's got to go, yeah. move that around. Have you got a bit of a knack? Can you not yeah. look at a question in, in the same way anymore? <laughs> I can't look at anything in life. <laughs> I can't read anything <laughs> without thinking there was a much simpler way to say that. There absolutely is a knack to it. I mean, you're right. The first thing I generally tend to do is just go through and score out words that are just not necessary or information that is not necessary. After we've removed those words, we want to make sure that what we're asking is as clear as possible. So thinking the words that we've got left, are they the right words? Are they the words that will 
allow students to give us the response that we're asking for in the mark scheme. So, I mean, I think once you get into it and once you start doing it, it becomes quite easy to see. But I think when you're starting out, you just put a question out there. But it goes through really quite a lengthy process and is looked at by an awful lot of people. And I think that's the other difficulty. We've got lots of different areas that we need to make sure that we meet. So obviously students come first. That exam is about what they can show us in terms of what they know and the skills that they have. But we also need to think about regulatory compliance for off-qual. We need to make sure that we're assessing the specification content that's laid out in the specification and that, that we haven't changed the wording of that in any way to confuse students. Could you try and give us a sense of what kind of steps are involved in starting with creating these questions, mm-hmm. going through all these checks to then get into the final finished product that is the exam? It's, it's quite a lengthy process. It generally takes about a year and a half from start to finish. A year to and a question half. Paper. Yeah, and a lot of different people look at it. In addition, quite often the people that work with us are teachers because it's extremely important that they're involved in the process. They are at the cold face with students. They know what's going on in schools. So often they have full-time jobs. But we have a couple of really important points in the process where the question paper is reviewed. And really in the very early on drafts, we have somebody called a reviser come in who again is often a teacher. And they have a really quite a lengthy checklist to look at that covers all sorts of things. They look at assessment objectives, they look at the cognitive demand of the question, they have to check that it meets the subject content and also that the response we've given in the mark scheme is likely to be elicited by the question that we've asked. And when it comes to language, the revisers um, will look at the command words to make sure that they're used consistently and appropriately. They're asked to make sure that every item is written in plain English and that it's clear to understand in terms of the target student group is the language accessible is it understandable and is it appropriate they're asked to check that all sources are clear to read and also that the items avoid any bias stereotyping or offensiveness wow (laughs) and that's just part of the list (laughs) it's not everything (laughs) now you mentioned their language accessibility. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the first thing that's going through my head here is that there's a lot involved in, in putting these questions and these exam papers together. So can we, we dive a bit deeper in, into that, if that's all right? Now, let's take word count mm-hmm. first. Now, I'm a, I'm a maths teacher. Sure. And I like a nice, short, sharp question. So it's, it's obvious what, what, what it's about. But then there's some, even in maths, there's some lengthy epics. So I wonder, if you should just talk to me a bit about word count, are you bound by any specific guidelines? Do you try and make questions as short as possible? Mm-hmm. Is there complete freedom? What are some of the considerations when it comes to word count? We don't have a specific word count that we have to adhere to, but you're absolutely right to say that questions being as short as possible is actually really important. What we don't want to do in an exam with a question is to give students any additional words that they would have to understand that they don't really need to answer the question. There are only so many bits of information that a person can hold in their brain at one time and it's actually quite small. (laughs) I think it's about three to five. (laughs) So if we've written a question and it's got lots of different aspects to it and we're asking students to hold all those aspects in their head while they respond to the question that wouldn't really be appropriate. Sometimes in the past we have had questions where in order to keep the narrative of 
the section of a paper, say, for example, if all the questions are linked to one area, we might add a stem in at the beginning that gives some explanation to the question that's about to come. But we're starting to remove a lot more of that information because essentially we don't need students to understand that bit and it doesn't help them answer the question so we don't put it in. Got it. So short and sweet is the way forward. Definitely. Um, I don't suppose you could give us an example of a question that maybe you've just tweaked slightly and taken out a few of these superfluous words just to illustrate this. So an example of a question here would be explain how the demand for water is met within the UK. Now, that does actually come across as a reasonably like short it. question. Sounds it's okay, nice. isn't it? But we can actually take a few words out and we can change the phraseology a bit to I'm, make it even more simple. I well, let's play a game here. Say that question one more time <laughs> okay. and maybe the listener can, can think what words okay. are going to come out of this. So go for it. What's that, what's that question again? So the question again is explain how the demand for water is met within the UK. Okay. Any ideas? <laughs> I'm liking this. I'm liking this. Yeah, okay. go, go on. What, what have you done with that one? Okay, so we would change that to explain how water demand is met in the UK. Okay, so what, what's gone there? Specifically, what's been changed there? So we've taken out the word the, yeah. which is not needed. We've changed demand for water to water demand. It means exactly the same thing, but it takes another word out, which is for. And instead of saying is met within the UK, we've just removed the word within. So it says in the UK. So this is a fieldwork based question. State the title of your fieldwork inquiry in which human geography data were collected. That's quite wordy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. could definitely do something Absolutely. with that. <laughs> and that could be changed to state the title of your human geography fieldwork inquiry. Wow, that's quite a big cut down. That it one. is quite a big cut down. I think we've taken at least a third of that off. And essentially, we're asking students for exactly the same thing. And actually, the second one's definitely much clearer. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's, it's subtle changes. And you probably th like, I'm thinking, surely that's not going to make all that difference. But then I'm thinking of my students. They're in the exam. They've all the anxiety that goes with exams. They've, they've perhaps just come off a, an epic question, the question before. They've all these thoughts swimming around the head. And those little changes might just make a world of difference, Absolutely, mightn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And it's so important to us that we really give the opportunity to let students show us what they know and what they can do. And if we've got anything in an exam that doesn't allow them to do that then it's not as valid as it should be I mean there are quite a few other considerations that come into that when you think about the ability range of all the students in a class so you've got students who are low medium and high ability one exam is meant to assess the whole ability range now one of the other things that we haven't quite talked about yet is demand and demand of the content. So you might look at a question and think, that's actually really difficult. Hopefully it won't be the language that's making it inaccessible, but the content could be seen as being too demanding for a particular student. The content that's in a specification is derived from off-qual criteria, so awarding bodies don't have full control over the content that students study. Can I ask you about context? Now, this, this is something that fascinates me. So we, we've talked about word count. We, yep. We've talked about the complexity of the language, mm -hmm. but actual the actual context that these questions and language are set in. Mm -hmm. So my first question on this is, are you influenced by kind of changing modern trends? Do, do, do contexts adjust to kind of move with the times? I think there are some subjects 
texts that probably lend themselves quite well to using contexts that are fairly up to date. Subjects such as geography mm-hmm. quite often use real life examples and exam papers. Now, exam papers are actually written two years before they're sat by students. So one of the difficulties with that is that <laughs> things can have moved on a little bit by then. I think in all honesty, we just try to keep the context as basic and as simple as possible. I think it's helpful if a context is something that they can relate to where possible. But it's also very difficult because when you think about the number of students that take GCSEs, you know, it runs into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. You have to be careful not to make sweeping assumptions about what students might know about or what might be interested in. Absolutely. And and just to clarify, again, is there a requirement to have a certain proportion of contextual questions within an exam? So it's you're not just choosing to kind of put these concepts in there. You have to. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So that application has to be context that students won't be familiar with, that they won't have come across in the specification or... It can also be where they have to make links between areas of the specification that they wouldn't necessarily have been taught in class. I mean, that's that's a big demand, isn't it, for a kind of a question writer or putting something together, particularly that is unfamiliar from the specification. It's got, Absolutely. Because almost the specification kind of has all the obvious ones. So mm. then you're kind of forced to think, well, certainly in maths, it sometimes feels yeah. like some of these contexts are shoehorned in there yeah. when, when they're not really relevant. How do you go about getting a sense of whether these contexts are appropriate for students because a key point you've made is that the purpose of the exam has Mm -hmm. to be to assess what kids know and it can't be it can't be unfair it can't be unfair to them so are students kind of ever involved in the process of when these questions are being written Mm -hmm. getting a sense of whether they do understand what the question's asking how do we know we're pitching it right our senior associates who write the papers with us bring their subject expertise but many of them bring teaching experience as well they tend to work in a variety of different types of schools so they will absolutely look at something and say I think that yeah the majority of the kids in my class would understand that or they might say there's no way that's going to work the kids just won't understand what that means when we say it we have scrutineers who actually sit the papers we have two of those so they sit the papers blind to make sure that they can answer them even if you work with teenagers you work with GCSE students putting yourself in their position and imagining what it's like to be them and what they know and what they understand and what they see is really very difficult oh I mean I mean I'm gonna say it now I couldn't be more out of touch like yeah. I'm, like I, I consider myself quite hip I don't have a, I don't have a flipping clue like especially if I try and bring in something into yeah. the lesson that I think they're gonna love yeah. this and they're like what the hell are you on about yeah here? like I remember anything with social media I try and shoehorn that in yeah there, of course kids love social media and they're like what what are you doing yeah we got quite a lot of kickback on social media last year when we put a tweet and a GCSE geography exam and a lot of the kids got on social media on Twitter to say we see you EQA and that is not cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can't please yeah no I know I mean to be honest they've been quite light-hearted about it I think you're right what do you do for students who have English as an additional language? Because um, so the reason I'm asking this, and it goes back to something we've spoke about mm-hmm. already, that we want to make sure we are assessing their knowledge of the content. We don't want them to be disadvantaged by language issues. Is, is that a consideration? And, and do AQA account for that when they're creating the questions? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's exactly the types of things that we talked about already, making sure that we're using more commonly used words rather than less commonly used words. So we would say use and not utilise, make and not produce. And there is actually a dictionary there, I think, called the Co-Build Dictionary, which tells you what is a more commonly used oh. version of a word, which is a really good thing to use. What's so, that, the Co-Build? Co-Build, so C-O-B-U-I-L-D, dictionary. Oh. I think it's produced by Collins, but it tells you what is a commonly used word. So you can type it in and it will, it will tell you how often it's used. One of the other things that we do is we work with BATOD, who are the British Association for Teachers of the Deaf. And they've worked with us for quite some time. And they see early drafts of our question papers and they're able to comment on them because, as you could understand, students who were deaf, language is very different for them. So we get a full report from BATOD on each of our question papers and we'll make changes to that paper as a result of the report that BATOD sent to us. Well, I found this absolutely fascinating to learn about the thought process that goes into this. And I just I just think to myself, whenever I try to put like a, a practice test together for my kids, I'm not thinking about the word count. I'm not thinking about the language I'm using. I'm just grabbing questions, banging yeah. them together. Here you go, enjoy this. <laughs> Whereas it sounds like there's a little bit more yeah. to it than that. So I found this absolutely fascinating and, and illuminating so georgina thank you so much for your time today oh you're welcome thank you for coming talking to georgina has made me realize just how much thought and care goes into choosing the words used in exams but is there more we as teachers could be doing to give our students the best chance to access that language How can we successfully accommodate and teach students from different backgrounds, with different life experiences, with different levels of literacy, to thrive in the same exam? This all feels a bit of a minefield right now. So I'm going to meet Kate Brewer, who's the assistant head at William Perkins C of E, to find out what her experience of teaching an incredible number of EAL students has taught her about the importance of language in our lessons. Now, she is also a maths teacher like me, so I can't promise we won't get a bit nerdy and bond over our shared love of logic and linear equations. In fact, I can promise you we will. But I'm hoping she'll also be able to share a plethora of principles that can be applied to all our classrooms. So, hello Kate, and first up, thank you so much for inviting us into your school today. Just to start, can you give us a bit of an idea of the type of school this is, a bit of context and the kind of students that you teach here? So, we are a mixed secondary school and we're currently in our sixth year, so we've just opened our sixth form. We're a state school, but we are a faith school, but we're not selective, so we're a Church of England school in the area of Greenford in Ealing. We have about 1,100 students on roll and around 35% of those students have have English as an additional language. Can you just give us a sense, how many different languages are we talking about here that might be in your, in a class any given time or in a school any given time? Honestly, I have no idea. I would think 30 plus. 30? 
in the school, I would think. Wow. Now, I've been speaking to Georgina, who is one of AQA's assessment design managers. And the first off, the thing that surprised me was just how much thought was going into putting together exam questions and exam papers as a whole. But one area I am pretty clueless about, and I'm ashamed to say this, is teaching EAL students, whereas I know you're an expert in this. So I'm hoping I'm going to get a big education out of this here. So first off, what kind of language difficulties do EAL students have? There's such a range. So looking at the start, so when students come into us in year seven, if they are quite new to the country, they might never have seen topics like probability or geometry before because they're not actually taught in primary school in other countries. Oh, so even the, I mean, again, my naivety is coming through here. Even the type of maths will be different. Yeah, so the type of maths is different. And then there's a lot of issues around sort of subject specific words. So things that our students would know from primary school, like integer or things like that. But then with maths, you run into the difficulty of language that is more sort of subject specialised. So if you think about subtraction, but we would often say takeaway, but takeaway means taking food out. So And it's getting me hungry (laughs) as well. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you think of the word odd, so we obviously know that it's the opposite of an even number when you're talking about the context of a maths classroom, but also those students are learning that that word means different or weird. So it's being aware of subject specific terms, but also the subject specialised terms as well. I mean, just on that, maths is bad for this, isn't it? I always think this myself. I mean, first off, I should say it's very nice to be speaking to a maths teacher. On this series, they've got me speaking to all sorts, English teachers. So it's good to speak a bit of sense for once here. Maths is full of this dodgy terminology. So things like similar means something very specific Mm. in the maths classroom and something very different out of it. And I always think frequency is a bad one as well. And I remember I had a year nine class and period four, I was teaching them probability. So we had frequency. But period three, they'd come from a physics class where they've been doing frequency of waves and they've just got to switch. Now, that's bad if you're a native English speaker, but that must be a nightmare for someone whose English is their second language. Yes, definitely. So it's being aware of that and then putting small, easy strategies into place to support them. Could, could you give me a bit of a flavour of some of those strategies? I think if it's a topic like geometry or probability where there's going to be a lot of key terminology, instead of using class time to go through the definitions of those words, we flip the learning. So if we're starting a new topic on geometry or probability, there's a list of key definitions mm. that we give them that they go away in their own time to research the meaning. And then we develop on that in the classroom and clarify any meaning. And do you find, I mean, the classic thing with flipped learning is what do we do if the student hasn't taken the time to do that? But do you find most of the kids kind of buy into this approach? Yes, definitely. Because they know that they're going to be left behind when they come into the classroom or they might be leaving the person that sits beside them behind so we do a lot of collaborative learning as well so if the task was to go away and research these terms and then they're doing some partner work in the next lesson and they haven't researched the terms they're not going to be able to help their partner with the work. If it's okay I won't mind asking you a bit more about this peer-to-peer support because it's something again that I've I've struggled to make particularly effective in my lessons and you mentioned about this culture that there is about one student doesn't want to let their mate down so they're going to do the the work the night before. Can you just talk about what does that look like practically in the lessons? So we do a lot of collaborative learning in the maths classrooms at school. We use a lot of Kagan structures as oh, well. Oh, really? Okay. Which is perfect because I think sometimes when we talk about group work or peer-to-peer support, we have this idea of sort of hogs versus logs. Oh, you're going to have to tell me more okay. about this. Hogs versus logs? So you've got one student who's high ability who's going to hog all the work. <laughs> and then you've got a student who might be lazy or less confident even who sits 
like a log and doesn't do as much. <laughs> I like it. But if you carefully plan and the Kagan structures that are being created and you can get online, everyone has a purpose in this collaborative learning and you avoid the hog versus log sort of scenario. So I think the first thing to do is really know your class and make sure that your seat and plan supports students. So are you pairing students of a similar ability, but maybe one has a weaker English than the other? Or are you going for, I'm going to put my high ability near my low ability? And there's arguments for both. Can I ask, which do you go for there? Do you go for the similar ability or, or the wider range of ability? Um, I work in a four. So you have your high ability and your lowest ability working diagonally across each other. I've got it. I can picture okay. this. Yeah, I like and it. And you either work with your shoulder buddy or your face buddy so you never work across the table so the highest ability and the lowest ability at your table never work together Ah. but you could work with the the second or the third and vice versa are the language difficulties that EAL students have the same as the ones that students who just have literacy issues would have? I think it depends very much on the student. So we have a lot of students who have English as an additional language who the lack of English is a barrier and you can break that barrier down with children within probably about a year and then they are sort of can be set free. There's other students who it doesn't come as quickly and then it's quite similar to students with poor literacy and this particular our first co cohort had very low literacy skills across the across the board so it was sort of a whole school strategy was put in place to deal with the low literacy skills which then positively impacted the students with EAL as well. We mentioned before about tricky words in mathematics, but particularly these that apply in different subjects or different contexts. I want to ask you about the the kind of words that crop up again and again and again in, in particularly maths exams, like you discuss, evaluate, all this. And I, I think the technical term is command words. And yes. um, do you have any strategies for for getting kids? good at understanding what they mean. So what we actually have across the whole school is a command word booklet. So they're given that when they enter Key Stage 4 and it has the command words but also how they are applied in different subjects. Because if you're asked to evaluate in a maths exam, whilst the meaning is the same in your geography exam, what you actually have to do to get the marks in the question is quite different. Do you have any kind of favourite stories or, for want of a better phrase, kind of case studies of students who you've really seen flourish using these strategies. Well, we had our first set of GCSE results this summer and I think a lot of us were like, oh, have we been doing the right oh, yeah. thing? You, because you don't really know, do you, right? We don't have a clue. So that day in August where we go in and we're like, oh, have we got this right? Because, I bet you're on edge there, yeah, right? Yeah, but it was, it was hugely successful. We were really, really proud of the students, especially in terms of the progress that they'd made. So our progress aid score was at 1.3. Which wow, is, is just, I take that. Yeah. Flipping heck. So, and we had a couple of students who had um, nine grade nines and one of those students actually joined us in year eight and she didn't speak any English at all. You're joking. No, so no English whatsoever and then just made exceptional progress throughout the years. And she'd been, I think when she joined, we have eight sets. And I think, yeah, when she joined, she was in set seven. By the time she got to year nine, she was in the top set. What What does that journey look like for that child? Because again, I guess my, I've got about a million questions to ask <laughs> you about this. But my first is, how did you know where to set them originally? Is it kind of just a, an assessment before they come in just 
just just to get a bit of a feel where where they come from. What, what, how did you know where to place them originally? I was just looking at where this particular student would get the most literacy support. So if she was in that classroom, she would have had additional literacy sessions as well. Got it. And then is it just is it a steady kind of ascent through the set? So we assess them at every quarter, and then they move based on how they do in their subjects. So when they're streamed, English and maths are double weighted, and then when they move into year nine, they're set in their individual subjects. Do you remember that first meeting with with this child? Like again, I'm just I don't know I don't know what I'm doing there with I, somebody who can't speak. I don't know where to go with it. You know? I think now because she's so confident and bubbly, and one of our you know key students in year twelve. It's so. I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that, do you remember when she first arrived and couldn't do anything? I think, yeah, you forget, but you forget so quickly because they learn so quickly if they're in the right environment. Yes. Sort of the progress they can make at that age. Like, I wish we could learn a language as quickly at our age. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I do. And yeah. I do. And do you use those students, if we, ta- if we take the girl in question here, would she be using kind of a mentor role for, for younger students? Because what, I mean, what a role model that is, right? Yeah, we do a lot of mentoring with our sixth formers and our younger students and they they love it. It's so nice to see them. So they meet in the mornings in the canteen and they sort of have breakfast together and they have a chat and it's, it's really working well for our, uh, especially our year 11s who are sort of on different mentoring programs. We don't do any intervention as a school at all. We just do mentoring and it's working really well, I think. Can I talk to you a bit about exams? Now, one thing I I wanted to dig into with Georgina was the context that these exam questions often contain, because I have a few question marks sometimes about them. What do you think, particularly this kind of trend to to include more kind of modern context in questions, is that helpful to students with uh, with, uh, English as an additional language or is it a hindrance? It's definitely a hindrance. Oh, I like this straight (laughs) off. We're not on the fence here. Go on, It's definitely a hindrance and I feel irrelevant. I feel if we're trying to assess a student maths knowledge that we should be assessing that not whether they can decipher what a question written in quite complicated English is asking them to do we chose AQA specifically for this reason because we felt that their exam was sort of if you will the purest maths exam that there was I felt some of the other exam boards were taken the wordiness to a new level. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Georgina's point was that AQA and all the other exam boards are bound by Ofqual, that they have to have a certain proportion of their questions within context. Mm. What are some of the contexts that that kids find particularly confusing? Have you come across um, an example perhaps this year or that, that springs to mind where you thought, that's a question that my students have struggled and, and how did you help them overcome it? I think it's sort of the context when it's context that they would never meet in day-to-day life like I think a lot of the time there's context where people are working on farms <laughs> yeah, and it's course. like our children have never seen sheep you know we're yes. in inner city London like this is they just don't understand this so again it's just <laughs> stripping out this unnecessary information and looking at what maths can we do within the question a lot of the time as well when there is a diagram We've done a lot of work with students where we give them just the diagram and we don't give them any of the words. And we ask them, what could this question be asking you to do? What could the context be? And they come up with their own context questions and then create mark schemes and then they share them with other students. So that then when they go into the exam, they've had all these different ideas about what the diagram could be linking to. And that's been quite beneficial because students from different cultures can create questions in different contexts. So we're kind of learning from each other about each other's culture as well as about maths. Oh, wow. Could you give me an example of that? So a lot of the time it's a shape with a shaded region. Yes. And it could be, this is a pond in a garden and how much 
lawn will he need? All the classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we just give them the diagram and they come up with such interesting things pure, from a maths point of view, but also then the context. And they usually use each other in their questions as well, which they love. One other thing I just wanted to ask you about definitions of words and glossaries is I don't know if you find this, Kate, but often a mistake I've made in my career is is let's let's take something like polygon or quadrilateral. Whenever you define, try and define a word like that, often you end up having to define the words in the definition. Instead of necessarily going to town with a big wordy definition, it'll be, here's an example of what one is, here's an example of what one isn't, kind of examples and non-examples. Yes. Would that be a strategy that, that yeah, you Yeah, definitely. We use uh, Freer models quite oh, a lot. Talk to me about these. This, this could be my new current obsession. Okay. So talk to me about Freer models. Um, so a Freer model is the keyword goes in the centre and then you've got four boxes around the outside. You have the definition of the word, characteristics, examples and non-examples. And I think like you've just sort of touched on, the examples and the non-examples are the most important bit of the Freer model. So for, for example, if you're going to define the word third, in your examples, you've got examples of third, so root two, root five. In your non-examples, you've got... 10 but you've also got root 16 because that's a really interesting conversation to get into with the students why is root 16 not a third and they look beautiful in the books as well oh they do oh they absolutely works of art these fray diagrams aren't they we use them as kind of a bit of a mini assessment sometimes so we'll have taught we'll have taught thirds and what i'm loving is the fact we're talking about thirds the english teachers will be switching off in droves here but i'm not (laughs) i'm not bothered about that because this is proper stuff here you'll have taught thirds and they've done a homework on thirds but for me the only way to really understand thirds or any term we define is you've got to be able to show me what it is and also what it isn't and the frayer models or fray diagrams are a really nice structured way of doing that and once again Kate and this has been a recurring theme throughout this conversation for me these aren't strategies just for EAL students. These benefit everybody, mm, don't absolutely. they? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, on a selfish point of view, I'm so pleased we've spoken today because I've got so much to come away with. So, Kate, thank you so much for inviting us into your classroom today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. What really struck me about the strategies Kate uses to include and support her EAL students is that she manages to cater to each individual's needs without neglecting the rest of her class. In fact, I would say all her strategies could and should be used in all our classrooms regardless of the number of EAL students we teach. I'm certainly going to be giving her tips for successful group work a go. Now, this is an education podcast. So if you want to do a bit of homework yourself, head over to the podcast show notes where you'll find some fascinating resources that illustrate the evolution of the wording in a single question like Georgina was telling me about earlier. Over the course of this series, I'll be seeking out more exam writers, markers and pioneering teachers to get the answers to your most pressing questions. So if you want to swat up ahead of exam season, make sure you rate review and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, goodbye.